Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Wesley Brown has been practicing law in Richmond for the last 20 years, but during that time, he's also been writing. His debut novel, Hillbilly Hustle, came out right at the height of the pandemic, which kept him from doing a huge tour that he and his publisher had planned for the book. That hasn't kept the novel from getting rave reviews, though. Chapter 16 calls it a whip-smart story that will keep pages turning late into the night. Wes is originally from Michigan, but has lived in Kentucky for about 25 years now. Welcome to the show, Wes. Thank you, Silas. I'm glad to be on the show. Why don't you tell our listeners what you want them to know about Hillbilly Hustle? Well, I wrote Hillbilly Hustle uh, as something that I would like to read. I, I, You know, I've gotten a lot of good advice about writing from a lot of different people over time, but I, the, maybe the best was, was please yourself and hopefully you'll please some other folks. And that seems right. to have worked here. I like novels that are, you know, I like a variety of novels, but some of my favorites are, are kind of dialogue heavy and, and funny, but also have some heart to them. And that's the kind of book I tried to write. And it being a first novel, nobody wants to bite off too much. So I wrote something fast paced and, uh, I got about 260 pages. It's something that people can dip their toe in, see if they like it, and uh, see what they think of what I'm doing. And uh, Hillbilly Hustle really started from, you know, they say write what you know, and I didn't uh, I didn't stray too far from that. You don't have to write what you know, but I wrote quite a bit of what I know. Uh, my family owns a pizza shop in Richmond, Kentucky, called Apollo Pizza. We have since 2012. I practice law. I play poker and uh, a lot of other things, and I I drew from all those things in the book. Philly Hustle's about a pizza shop in Richmond, Kentucky, much like we have, and uh, there's a marijuana proprietorship that springs up in the pizza shop, and that is not too far from reality. We don't sell marijuana (laughs) at Apollo Pizza, obviously. I'm an attorney. My wife's attorney. We'd get in a little bit of trouble, you know, and our partner's families wouldn't have that either. But it was pretty well known in Richmond back in the day that Apollo Pizza was actually a place where you could buy marijuana. And uh, I've written, like you mentioned, I've, I've written for a lot of years. I've, I've, I've been working on novels for over 20 years before this one got published. And uh, I landed on this idea about writing about a pizza shop that uh, sold marijuana. And it, it's a novel. It's clearly all fiction. I made it all up, but I, I took that as the kernel of where things started, and I went from there and had fun with it and happy with it. Well, now, you said you played poker, but you're you're being pretty modest there. Now, am, am I correct? that Didn't you play in, like, the World Series of poker, or, or am I wrong? I did. No, I did. I played in... I only played in it one time. I played in 2007, and the goal of most people is to make the money. And I did make it into the money in the World Series of Poker. I play in No Limit Texas Hold'em. Book starts with a game of No Limit Texas Hold'em, kind of a backroom game. And that's really where I did most of my play. I played online quite a bit, too. But mostly my favorite thing to do was to play in these games in and around Madison County and surrounding counties. And I'll tell you, I played in some some odd places. I played in barns. I played at country clubs. And I played in back rooms. You name it, I played there. And uh, that's kind of the opening scene reflects that interest. And I don't get to play as much as I used to, and I, I miss it. But I, I still, uh, it's still kind of in my veins. And I, yeah, I, uh, 
you know, I think every poker player wants to go see how they do in the World Series, so I, I did it that one time. Maybe I'll go back someday, but, you know, I've not been able to do it in, the, what's it been, 13 years? I haven't been back in 13 years. I felt pretty satisfied, though, to have, to have, to have won some, some money there. Yeah, that's really cool. Are there other novels about card sharks that, that you know or that you really love? Well, my favorite uh, book about poker is called The Education of a Poker Player by Herbert O. Yardley. It's been a while since I read it. I think it's the 40s or the 50s. It's set in a little card room in rural Indiana. And actually, one of our local judges gave it to me. Uh, Bill Klaus was a district and circuit judge here in Madison County for a long time. He knew I was into poker, and he had that book. And he said, read this. I think you'll find it interesting. And I was kind of like, yeah, right. I loved it. And come to find out, that is kind of a favorite uh, book for a lot of people, it's essentially a memoir of a guy who is a house player for a poker game in a in a rural town, and, and the owner explaining to him how to how to play poker and how to play the, the smart way and the right way. And there's some other books that I really like about poker, but that's kind of the the one that I always think of when I when I consider my favorite. Yeah, that that makes me think about um, the Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis has become such a phenomenon, so widely seen. Um, and and he's from Madison County originally, I believe, or his family is at least, and and I know he lived there for a little while and in Lexington. But anyway, you have a reference to the Queen's Gambit in this book, which came out long before anybody else, uh, the whole world knew about the Queen's Gambit. So was is that a favorite book of yours or an influential book? It is extremely, and I'll tell you, Carrie Mullins, a, a real great novelist, Kentucky novelist from Rockcastle County, who's a, who's a friend. She sang the praises of Queen's Gambit to anyone, and uh, she's the one who got me to read it, and I just loved it. And you're right, Walter Tevis is actually buried up the hill from uh, Apollo Pizza in the Rich in the Richmond Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's no secret anymore; people know it's a book about chess. When I was writing the first two chapters of Hillbilly Hustle, I was struggling with how to describe the poker scenes. And I finally went back and I reread the Queen's Gambit to see how he handled chess scenes in that book because they were so perfect. You didn't have to know chess to understand the drama and the setups. And so I went back and rewrote the first two chapters of The Hillbilly Hustle after looking at what he did with the Queen's Gambit. Hmm. And it, it really was indispensable to me to getting that done the right way. And so there's a there's a reference to someone being a prodigy and, uh, and uh, someone refers to one of the characters as a young Beth Harmon right. in uh, Hillbilly Hustle. And that was sort of my nod to Tevis for, uh, for his uh, assistance in getting this book done. Well, I wish the people who made the Queen's Gambit would get a copy of Hillbilly Hustle. <laughs> uh, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Right. Well, before we came on the air, I asked you to select a short scene to share with us. So uh, do you have that ready to share? I do. This is about the, my protagonist is a fellow named Knox. And uh, he's, uh, for the first time, going to pick up some marijuana from uh, a supplier, kind of a kingpin named Burl Spoon, who lives in Jackson County, Kentucky. And this is him making his way there. The first time he went up to Burl's farm, 
Knox thought it'd be easy based on the directions. Turn left at the arcade. When you get to the four corner shell mark, make another left. I'm in a white farmhouse up the driveway at the end of the road. You'll run right into it. Even though it was only a county away, it took Knox nearly an hour to get to McKee, the last 30 minutes of it winding through hills. When he finally got to 2nd Street in downtown and turned left in front of the arcade, he had it in his head he was nearly there. But 2nd Street and McKee turns into 89, and it was another 20 minutes of serpentine twist between wooded slopes just to reach the shell mark. And after the turn off to Burl's house, he leave for another 10 minutes or so. The road ended in a cul-de-sac with a single white mailbox. It had no name on it, only numbers. On the mailbox post was a neatly painted brown-on-white sign that read, Absolutely No Trespassers. The driveway in looped up from the holler where the road laid. It was a series of gravel switchbacks so severe it felt like treading in place. Knox found himself in the thick of the Daniel Boone National Forest, the driveway a blighted scar and otherwise heavy growth. He expected the terrain to flatten out for what Burl called his farm, and it did a bit, but the hills never slacked. The pictures in Knox's mind on the way there were of all these wild backwood scenes. Most incorporated a metal gate, cars on blocks, dogs on chains, trailers, thugs prowling with automatic weapons. Movie stuff. What he found was from some other film entirely. Burl's house and yard rest in a level spot, but the landscape on all sides around it tilted vertical. His grass was neatly kept, the mowing lines in a crisscross pattern. The white farmhouse shone bright from within the backdrop of green. It was trimmed with starkly contrasting black shutters. Red flowers flowed from the dozens of hanging baskets that decorated the wide wraparound porch. The porch was also decked with a quantity of rocking chairs Knox had previously only seen out front of Cracker Barrel restaurants. I think of this novel as a literary thriller, which I think is really hard to pull off. Um, the pages really turn. It's full of action, and like you say, it's fun, but it's also very well written. Um, I mean, you pay really close attention to your sentences. Um, there's... a it's very lyrical. I mean, we heard that in the scene you read. So how hard is it to pull off that balance of being action-oriented and making the pages fly by, but also really being literary? I, you know, it's a challenge, but it's, it's the way I write, it, which is not to say it comes easily, but that's, that's the style, and that's, those are the styles of books that I like. And, and that's kind of what, I, what comes natural to me to write. And, you know, a lot of my favorite authors uh, write in similar ways. Uh, Ron Rash and uh, mm-hmm. uh, David Joy is, a, is another person who I really admire his writing. Uh, Daniel Woodrell, uh, uh, I, you know, I could name check author after author. Um, but I read literary fiction mostly, but I read some, some more commercial stuff. And I like crime fiction. Uh, and the fact is, I also like humorous stuff. And one of the nice things, my book's published by West Virginia University Press. And one of the things, my, my editor uh, was Abby Freeland, who's now with University of Kentucky, but at the time was with West Virginia. She never put any constraint on me on this fitting on a certain shelf in the bookstore. 
And you hear a lot of people say that that's a that's an issue when they try to sort of mash up different genres when they're with a big New York press and West Virginia University Press never once asked that of me. They just mm-hmm. you know the, the the instruction was just write the best book you can and write the book you want to write. And it, it's a little bit of an amalgam of different styles and and I'm happy with it. You know it's funny it's generally lumped in with crime fiction. I'm, I, I think I'm fine with that, but uh, I, it's it's as literary as, I, as I'm able to write, too. I, I, you know, that's, what, that's the only way I can really say it. Why do you like to write about flawed characters? I just find them more interesting. I, I, I've taken a, a beating in a lot of workshops for writing unlikable characters, and the fact of the matter is Knox, the main character, was I had to make him more likable. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had people who complained that he wasn't likable enough. And I, I, I liked how he came out, by the way. I'm glad I changed that. But what's funny about that is Burl Spoon, the uh, antagonist, is a lot of people's favorite character. I hear that again and again and again, that people like Burl Spoon, and he's he, he's not a good guy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved writing him, and people like reading him. And the fact of the matter is I'm working on a follow-up, and it's called Spoon, and it's about Burl Spoon. And so if people thought that uh, Knox Thompson was flawed as a uh, protagonist, uh, Spoon's going to be worse. It's going to be sort of that Walter White vein, you know, kind of right. vein of Breaking Bad, where you've got someone who's just altogether not really a very sympathetic person. I, I kind of like the challenge, too, of taking someone who's maybe – you know, so gray area that they're almost, you know, in the dark and, and trying to get people to still get in their shoes and enjoy that. I, I don't know what it is, but, I, you know, I, the media I, I enjoy, too, seems to be like that, too. Books and movies I watch are kind of like those flawed and dark characters. Mm-hmm. Well, you're someone who talks a lot about the importance of community to a writer, uh, even though... You know, the stereotype is that writers work in solitude, and that's that's really not true. So why has that been so pivotal for you, community? Oh, my gosh. Well, for starters, as an attorney, I didn't know anyone else who wrote. And I was starved for um, peers. And, I, and, and, and my writing was suffering for lack of peers because I really didn't have anyone to talk about writing with and and where I really found my peers was at the Hyman Settlement School at the Appalachian Writers Workshop. And I went for about five years in a row, and a lot of my best friends, uh, <laughs> really the majority of my best friends, are, are people from and around that workshop now. And uh, I mentioned Carrie Mullins, uh, Carrie Mullins and Robert Guype, and a, and a group of other writers that I befriended there became my peers. And they, they read early parts of this uh, this novel for me. Part of it was because I do like feedback, but part of it was the process with West Virginia University Press. Uh, the books have to be peer-reviewed. And so I had two peer reviewers who read this book. I also worked closely with my editor, but it was pretty collaborative. I got a lot of feedback. Um, and one of the key things that happened right at the tail end was I went to the Tin House Writers Workshop out in Portland, Oregon. And that was really my first big national workshop and I'd wanted to go to that for a long time and, and it was it, it was a really good experience 
But I worked on this novel there. I thought it was done, and Abby Freeland encouraged me to take it there and work on it there. And I worked with Benjamin Percy, who's a real good author, also mm-hmm. uh, interestingly writes comic books and stuff. And he suggested a really radical revision. And I had about 30 days to get my novel in. And I cut 40% of the novel and rewrote 20% of it back at the wow. very last minute on his advice. I, I relied heavily on my friends and mentors to, to make this come out uh, the way it did. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I listened because they were, I, I got a lot of good advice from a lot of people. Right. Sometimes killing your darlings is the best thing you can do in a book. That's for sure. So you um, are an attorney. You're the co-owner of several restaurants. What is it? Five now? Seven. Seven. Well, Okay, attorney, co-owner of seven restaurants. Uh, you also uh, curate a, a concert series over in Irvine at one of your restaurants, et cetera. How do you, what's what's the secret to having all this energy <laughs> and finding the time to, to really devote yourself? Because, I mean, the major thing a writer needs uh, for a novel is time. How do you do it? Naps are an important part of my regimen. Um, (laughs) You know, the good thing is I've worked for myself um, for a long time. I went out on my own within a year of getting out of law school. And so I'm my own boss. And so I set my own hours and I, my, my, my bread and butter is practicing law, but I also, you know, it sounds weird to say, but a lot of people kind of understand this now. I've always been, um, ADHD, mm-hmm. but for, for, for the right person that can be helpful. Yes. And for me it is because it's like I can run trains on five tracks at once. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and when I'm going, I'm going full speed five ways and I get really engrossed in, in the things that I'm doing. And so I have my phone in my hand and I'm in contact with, uh, our restaurants all the time. Uh, I'm, 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 practicing law all day but uh, you know when i'm sitting in court i'm texting about what beer are we putting on in lexington what uh we we, we've run out of we've run out of cheese somewhere how can we get cheese moved somewhere else so i kind of do all that stuff at once Mm -hmm. um and and again because i'm somewhat autonomous i'm able to do it and then i come home in the evening and very often when i'm writing and and another thing is i always say that writing is my golf course I take it very seriously, mm-hmm. but it's something that I have to do in my spare time because it's not it's not my main vocation. Mm-hmm. So I will intentionally come home and take a nap so that I can stay up late writing. And so I, I'm someone who will sleep from 6 to 8, be up till 2 in the morning, get back up at 7.30, do the, do the day, and then, and then repeat that. And that's how I get the writing in. My motto has always been, I'd rather be busy than bored. So... <laughs> so I stay busy. I agree. Well, I agree wholeheartedly. You are a great music lover, and we share many similar tastes. Um, what are your favorite albums of 2020? Can you tell me your top three? I can. I can. Um, you know, it's been an interesting year because I'm not sure I, I absorbed as much music as I usually do because I used to listen to my car a lot or we would book shows and stuff and I'd be listening to new people. So it's been a little bit different. Um, but 
one of my favorites, and it's been sort of a gratifying thing because it was a guy who played our venue. We've got a place called Steam Engine Pizza Pub, and we've got the Steam Engine Session Room over in Irvin, little music venue. And Arlo McKinley was one of our regulars there. He is absolutely one of my favorites, and I, he's so good that I just couldn't wait for the rest of the world to hear what he was doing. And he signed to uh, Oh Boy Records. Mm. He was the last signing to Oh Boy Records before John Prine passed away. Wow. Um, and his album was uh, Die Midwestern. And I am telling you, it is an, it is an, it is a masterpiece. Um, it was re- one of the things that was really great was we'd been we'd heard him play these songs most of them for for some time. It was produced by Matt Ross Spang, who also produces. I hope I said that right, but he produced Jason Isbell and Margot Price and also John Prine. And for Arlo to get that treatment and to get that production is just, mm. I mean, it is something special. The album is so good. So I I, I just love Die Midwestern. Um, I was mentioned it's been harder for me to hear music this year. Uh, I have a vehicle that has a uh, Sirius satellite radio in it, and my wife has been driving it because she's been going to work, and I've been working from home mostly. And she's the one who first brought Phoebe Bridgers to my attention. Yeah, I love her. Her album Punisher. Oh, Lord, it's so good. And I think I'd heard her name kind of in the wind before, but it never really really focused in on it. My wife said, we have, you, you've got to listen to Phoebe Bridgers and man, she, I was just blown away by Phoebe Bridgers album. And early part of the year, I could not stop listening to Nathaniel Rateliff and it's still all right. That one, the first half of the year was the one that really got me. Um, those, those, yeah. those are kind of the, the ones that have gotten me through the year and that I've listened to through the pandemic the most. What, uh, besides your book, of course, what books should our listeners be reading to What do you recommend? I've got two in particular that I most call people's attention to that maybe, maybe some people have heard and some people haven't. Um, I don't think it's much of a secret anymore because it was a finalist for the National Book Award. But West Virginia University Press published The Secret Lives of Church Ladies yeah. by Disha Thuryaw, mm-hmm. um, which she's in Pittsburgh. That makes it an Appalachian book, which is which is kind of nice. It's nice to, for Appalachia to lay claim to, to a finalist for the National Book Award. And Silas, I don't know if you've read it, but it is absolutely unbelievably good. Mm. Oh, my goodness. The other one that I absolutely love, and this may not surprise you because I think you know him too, but... Um, one of my one of my mentors and great friends is George Singleton, mm-hmm. and uh, Hub City Press put out a collection of his called "You Want More," and it is basically his greatest hits. And to me, he is the greatest living humorous Southern short story writer. And that's it's sort of a long title I just gave him there, but I, hopefully, hopefully it makes sense. I would I would agree with that notion of greatest Southern humorist of the time of our time. Yeah, one of the best short stories I know is his story called Show and Tell. I'm sure it's in that collection. So, yeah, everybody look for those books and also be sure to look for Hillbilly Hustle. It's available wherever fine books are sold. Well, Wes, thanks so much for for being here with us today. Oh Lord, thank you for having me, Silas. I, I I love what you do, and I'm I'm pretty honored to get to be a part of it. Well, we're sure glad to have you.
Thanks to everybody out there for tuning in to On the Porch. Uh, until next time, be good to one another. We are going to go out on another favorite of the year of mine. And our guest today just so happened to mention it. This is Graceland 2 by Phoebe Bridgers. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.